Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Uh, really uh, excited to have a special guest uh, today uh, on the show. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Uh, Elizabeth Loggison from uh, California. Uh, a lot of you folks will know the name from uh, uh, her, her great work creating and, and researching the PEERS program, and that is going to be the, the main topic of today's conversation. So welcome to the podcast, Liz. Well, thank you so much for having me, Ben. Super excited. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, PEERS is well known kind of to everybody. It's, 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 uh, at least certainly in, 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 in the behavior analysis field. Um, there's, you know, there's certainly lots of aspects of ABA that are kind of embedded in peers in terms of, you know, how it's taught and, and those sorts of things. We know it to be, you know, the most evidence-based practice whenever someone asks on a social media page or a discussion group or a, a meeting, what evidence-based practice should I use for social skills? Peers is always the first example to come up. And so, uh, you know, it, it, certainly in terms of evidence, but I think also in terms of marketing, uh, you and your team have done a an amazing job of, of of disseminating this work to to the world, um, but I think also that there's uh, you know things didn't didn't stop there, and so today I'm looking forward to kind of digging into you know a little bit about peers itself, but then also kind of you know chatting about all the kind of good work you're doing today to sort of you know expand peers both around the world, but also in terms of kind of different different kind of measured outcomes beyond sort of quote unquote social skills and you and 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 uh, it's, it's just been amazing sort of going through the literature uh you know seeing the research written by you and your team but also by lots of other folks that um, you weren't even involved with kind of doing the work and 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 I think that's on some on on one level probably pretty flattering but at the same time it's also really helpful in terms of um you know, building it up as an evidence-based practice. So before we kind of get into peers and what it's all about and that sort of thing, I always like to kind of do a little bit of an origin story of, of my guests. And so normally it's, you know, I'm talking to someone about kind of how they got into the ABA field and we'll hear about their, you know, their experiences doing therapy with young children and so on and moving into the, the sort of the BCBA track. But it's it's fun today to sort of talk to someone who, you know, is is in the psychology field, kind of from from a from a different direction, and kind of hearing those pieces. So, how'd you kind of get into the the field, I guess, of 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 of, uh, of psychology and 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 so on, and 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 get to you know where you are in California, um, um, you know, sort of from the, from the beginning there, and then and then what kind of led you to sort of um, develop this program? Yeah, well, thank you for the. The questions, you know, um, I don't know when it when it comes to how did I get into the field of psychology. I I often will tell people that I don't feel like I chose psychology. I feel like psychology chose me. <laughs> um, it's just always how I've I've seen the world. I've uh, from a very early age. I've just always been very intrigued by what motivates people to to do and say the things that they do. And, and mm. I've always um, come from a, a place where I just wanted to to help others, I suppose. And so mm. I, I really don't recall a time 
were I ever seriously considered another career? So it's kind hmm. of a boring answer to how to get into <laughs> psychology, but I think I might have a more interesting answer for how did I get into social skills training? Totally. Um, and I actually have sort of the personal story and then I have sort of the professional story. I think they might be equally interesting, but very different. The personal story is that by the age of 24, I had lived in 21 different places. And by the time I got my doctorate, I'd gone to 13 different schools. So, you know, imagine having to adapt to these new environments. So frequently, I think I had to learn how to make and keep friends pretty quickly um, Mm -hmm. because my environment was constantly changing. I was constantly having to decode my social world Mm -hmm. and figure out sort of, you know, what were the rules there? And so I think um, from a very early age, I I started to, um, to recognize you know, these patterns and, and rules and sort of in different environments and, and started to decode the world in that way. The professional um, story is that, you know, I'd gone to UCLA on a pre-doctoral psychology internship and I was, I was focusing on developmental disabilities mm. and autism kind of peripherally. And I, I, I went to UCLA thinking I wanted to do something completely different. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you thought you were going to do one thing And then you ended up doing something completely different, you know, professionally. But um, when I first went to UCLA, I really thought I wanted to do assessments and testing or diagnostic assessments. And, um, and so when it, you know, came to do some more clinical work, I had a supervisor that approached me and they were doing this um, study with the CDC. It was a social skills intervention for kids with prenatal alcohol exposure, kids with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And I, that was also kind of a subspecialty of mine at the time. And there were four roles that interns could have on this, this project. You could either do the child assessment um, and testing, you could do the parent uh, testing and assessment, or you could run a child social skills group or a parent social skills group, because this was a parent assisted program. Well, here's this little secret, Ben. So I had gotten to the final year of my doctoral studies and I had never run a group. Like I was group phobic. Like I had avoided <laughs> running groups like the plague. Like I was really nervous about being in groups. I was much more comfortable one-on-one. And so I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear that I immediately um, offered to do the child assessment um, as part of you know the study. And my supervisor said to me, she said, well, that'd be great, but we have someone to do that. And I said, okay, how about if I do the parent assessment? <laughs> and she said, well, that would be great, but we have someone to do that. And so I'm inside internally, Ben, I'm panicking. Like I'm seriously panicking thinking, oh my goodness, she wants me to run a group. And I've been trying to avoid this my whole like academic career. But you know, I'm a trainee. I'm supposed to try new things. So I said, well, how about if I run the parent group? (laughs) And Ben, do you want to guess what she said to me? Oh, we have somebody. Yeah, they had (laughs) someone to do that. So running this child social skills group was my last choice. But it ended up being the best thing that's ever happened to me professionally, because I absolutely fell in love with the process. And what I love so much about social skills training is that it's a different approach to mental health issues. You know, um, if you want to predict who's going to be depressed and anxious later in life, for example, go to a typical middle school or high school and look for the kids who are being rejected by their peers. And that's going to be one of the strongest predictors. But having just one or two close friends is very negatively correlated with things like depression and anxiety. You're less likely 
to be depressed mm. or anxious if you have a couple of close friends. So to me, it's this very positive, very proactive approach to dealing with mental health conditions, which is something yes. that I'm trained to do. So here's the backstory about autism. I know this is a long story. Bear with me. I'm almost to the end of it. No, no, so, no rush. We're in the middle of this CDC study working with elementary school-aged kids with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, but the mm -hmm. phone is ringing off the hook, and the phone is ringing off the hook from parents of teens with autism, and they mm -hmm. know that this study is not about teens and it's not about kids with autism, but they're still desperate for services, and they're asking for referrals, and guess what? This is back in 2003 mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. We had nowhere to refer them. There were no programs for teenagers on the autism spectrum. And I realized that there was a huge gap in services, but I didn't want to mm -hmm. just fill that gap with just any intervention. I wanted to develop an intervention that we could test and really mm -hmm. sort of establish an, you know, an evidence base for. And that's really what mm -hmm. led uh, me to develop peers, essentially. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of things you said there resonated with me, uh, uh, you know, in particular, the, uh, the fear of running social skills groups, uh, you know, I, I, I'm with you. I, I would have also picked the assessments uh, for, for <laughs> sure. Um, uh, but I can also see, you know, uh, the, the impact, you know, that it would have had um, um, being able to do it. Um, and I also see um, um, it's also understandable that there, there, there aren't many programs out there. I mean, uh, I know sort of for me kind of, Cause like I only I only got into the field well just to sort of to compare timings I got into the field around two thousand and uh, uh, you know social skills were always sort of the the thing that every kid needed and and I was always working in sort of autism and mostly teens and adults so I can I can see how parents would be calling for that because you know we'd have the, we'd put together these support plans and whatnot and have different interventions and. And there will always be a recommendation for social skills training, and uh, but then no one knew what to do. <laughs> there was no particular thing to do. There was always this book called Skill Streaming, yeah, um, you know, which has been around forever, and that was sort of it. Go find the Skill Streaming book and do that stuff. Then, uh, okay. Uh, and I'm already I'm already a guy that is that that you know that I think could probably use a peers course. Um, to be honest, I, I and I'm not being sarcastic in any way i i struggle with social skills i struggle with social interactions myself i have a social kind of anxiety maybe i don't know if it's a disorder but you know i definitely have some social anxiety and, and not really know what to do in in certain situations and i've and i've actually found kind of in this, this being a bcba and being in this field has has taught me social skills um you know i think and that just me kind of coming from that kind of neuro neurodiverse perspective i have adhd and whatnot and so you know, uh, you know, I, I, I definitely kind of fit into into this this kind of cohort. But yeah, we've never really had anything um, um, uh, for years and years. And so, yeah, I, I'm not surprised at all that, you know, there's so many you know, social skills being sort of, you know, one of the primary kind of, you know, you know indicators you know, of, 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 for, for autism diagnosis. It's, it's amazing that there aren't, you know, uh, more of those things out there. Um, so yeah, I totally get that. Um, yeah, Ben, you, you said that, um, you feel like you could use, you know, a little peers or a little social skills training. I, I think everybody honestly yeah. could use a little social skills training. In fact, yep. 
you know, I, I kind of feel like as a society, we might be losing our social skills a little bit, the more that we sort of interact over electronics and, you know, yes. don't interact. In, and what about this period of time, you know, with COVID where we're all kind of social distancing. And so, I mean, I think we'd be hard pressed to find any person that couldn't benefit from some of the skills that we teach in peers. If that, you know, helps to normalize this a little bit for you. I, I think that, you know, you're, you're in a, a, you're in good company. There's a lot of, yeah. And, and by no means do I feel unique or anything. Um, and, and to be honest, I, I've, uh, you know, besides the obvious, uh, uh, negative health effects at all. I've actually been enjoying COVID um, <laughs> and, and, and the isolation. Uh, I live on an, a remote island, uh, sort of, you know, a few hours northwest of a big city. Um, there's not a lot of people here. Uh, I work from home entirely. Um, you know, I'm on the computer the whole time. I, I you know, I'm married. I definitely have humans to interact with, uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, it, 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 it's all good for sure. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I agree. I think we 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 uh, social skills are declining, and and uh, for a lot of folks, um, and there's I mean there's an incredible amount, and we could really digress here, but there's an incredible amount of inappropriate kind of social behavior online that we know about, and 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 it seems to be the more and more and more sort of you know sort of typical folk, you know, um, um, uh, you know are interacting really inappropriately online. Yeah. So uh, you know it's it's it, it, it's it's. Uh, I think you're. I think you're. I think you're right, and I think these kinds of supports are, are are really valuable. Another place I think peers fits really nice is I work primarily kind of in the in sort of under the umbrella of kind of positive behavior support, and uh, uh, in sort of that positive behavior support kind of model, there's those sort of three tiers of service. They have the kind of universal strategies and kind of you know, secondary and, and, and tertiary and the tertiary are kind of your intensive support plans and the universal strategy is things everybody should do all the time, you know, but what's often missing is those secondary strategies. And those tend to be, you know, well, there's sort of school-based ones like check-in, check-out and stuff like that. But then there's also um, um, uh, group interventions, um, but no one can ever really define what those are. And so peers has really been a wonderful a piece I think for sort of PBS practitioners as well to sort of have that you know group kind of base intervention that can you know really help in in preventing challenges so you know it's been valuable all along um just uh maybe but kind of before we get into some of the research and some of the great work you've been doing um Maybe if you could kind of just give us a bit of an overview of, of what peers actually is, what even what it even stands for, and sort of you know kind of kind of how it works. Um, what what makes it different from just so to say a social skills group? Yeah, well, peers is an acronym. It stands for the program for the education and enrichment of relational skills, and we have a number of of programs where we target you know different social skills related to either making and keeping friends. Um, maybe only handling conflict or rejection, things like bullying or teasing, handling arguments and disagreements. Um, but we also have programs that focus on things like obtaining and maintaining employment, um, mm. as well as, you know, dating etiquette. So, you know, social mm -hmm. skills are pretty broad. There's a lot of, you know, territory to, to cover. Mm -hmm. um, but what, what makes our program rather unique is that, as you've mentioned, um, it's one of the few evidence-based social skills programs, meaning that we have a, a great deal of research that shows that it's actually effective. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you, you look at the research on social skills training in general, you know, 
social skills training in general doesn't really tend to be very effective, truthfully. But um, this yep. program actually has, you know, over 40 research articles that have, you know, shown that it is actually effective in improving these kind of targeted areas of, of social skills. Um, what yeah. also makes peers unique is that we typically have some type of a, either a parent or caregiver assisted model. So not only do we have the um, the young person going through the program, you know, learning about these various skills, but we often will have a parent or some other caregiver that's going through the program in tandem. That might also be, you know, um, another family member, an adult sibling, maybe it's a job mm. coach or a life mm. coach. In Peers for Dating, we have dating coaches that are, you know, peer mentors, essentially. We have, uh, mm. you know, career coaches in Peers for Careers, but there's a person that's going through in tandem that acts as a social coach out in the real world. And mm. that's very helpful for generalizing the skills out into the real world to provide additional supports in the real world to help to individualize the program for that person. And then also if this is someone who is, you know, actively involved in, um, in their life, then the program is not going to end, you know? So for mm. example, a parent who goes through as a social coach with their child, that program is going to continue on long after they've left our group because mm. that parent is going to be continuing to provide that social coaching. And then I guess another third really important way that peers is different from other you know, more traditional social skills programs is that we're, we're teaching ecologically valid social skills. So that's sort of this technical term for, you know, what people who are sort of socially successful are naturally doing. So people who are mm. able to make and keep friends or people who are able to handle bullying, people who are able to get a job or to date successfully, what mm. are they naturally doing? And what's really fascinating to me about this, Ben, is that when you look at other social skills programs, they're not often teaching ecologically valid skills. In fact, what they're often teaching is what adults think that kids should do in social hmm. situations. So I kind of want to walk through this with you and see if yes. you can sort of see what I mean. So for example, you know, how do you meet new people? This is a big part of friendships. It's like, how do you meet new potential friends or meet new people? So what do you think, I'm going to put you on the spot here, Ben, but what <laughs> do you think that most adults would tell kids to do to meet new people? Like imagine they're going to school, a new school, and it's the first day of school. What would they recommend that they do to meet new people? Go up and do what? Probably walk up to them, say hi, and introduce themselves. Exactly. That is what most kids are told to do. And by the way, adults are told to do go yep. up and say hi, go up and introduce yourself. Now, have you ever thought of what that would look like? Like, imagine it's the first day of school. I walk up to you and your friends. I interrupt your conversation. I say, hi, I'm Liz. Right? Yep. Like, what would you think of me? Yep. So, the, 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 and this, this remind this is bringing back a a high school memory of, uh, you know, uh, back when I was, uh, you know, I, I started smoking cigarettes in high school solely to be part of a group, you know, granted I've, I've been off them for 20 years. So, but, um, <laughs> uh, but, but at the time, you know, this is me out in the, in the smoker's pit, as they called it, walking around from circle to circle with my cigarette. The only thing I think I have in common with these people and going, Hey, and them all just turning and looking at me. And then turning around and talking to each other. Again. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. No, oh. but but I could see that being kind of what happens, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you okay, I'll you know, I, we're gonna re, we're gonna definitely repair that 
situation <laughs> for you in just a moment here. Um, and we're going to think about what Ben could have done differently in that situation. Sure. But first, let me walk you through um, <laughs> what's ecologically valid. So what do socially right. successful people do? Well, I mean, they start by kind of watching from a distance and kind of listening to the conversation. Right. So you don't yeah. want to just barge into a conversation or introduce yourself. You mm -hmm. also don't want to just talk about whatever you want and be off topic. Instead, you would kind of listen to the conversation and watch from a distance. But you don't want to look like a creepy stalker mm -hmm. staring at them. Right. So mm -hmm. most people will use like a prop or something like maybe it's their cell phone or they're sort of distracted, maybe a gaming device, mm -hmm. some mm -hmm. reading material. But you're trying to figure out what they're talking about. And you also want to make sure that you have a common interest. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you need to know something about what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so then assuming that you have a common interest, you're not going to just yell from across, you know, the, the room or across the parking <laughs> lot, wherever you happen to have been during this incident. Right. right? Um, you want to move a little bit closer. You don't want to interrupt the conversation. So you wait for a little pause mm -hmm. and then you mention the topic. Right. Whatever mm. they're talking about. So you could make a comment. You could ask a question. You could even give a compliment. But it needs to be on topic. And then right mm -hmm. away, you also have to assess whether it seems like they want to talk to you. And mm. for a lot of people, when you ask, you know, how can you tell if somebody wants to talk to you? Most people will say it's a feeling that they get. But in reality, there's actually concrete behaviors that give you the feeling, right? Maybe you don't have the feeling. So what are the concrete behaviors? Mm -hmm. Well, what are mm -hmm. they doing with their eyes if mm. they want to talk to you? What do you think, Ben? What would they be doing with their eyes? They might be looking at you. Yeah, they're looking at you. They're not like, you know, rolling their eyes or making a face. Mm -hmm. What would they be doing then with their bodies if they wanted to talk to you? They might be kind of turning towards you or gesturing or... Yeah, exactly. They'd be turned towards you. They'd be facing you, not turned away, giving you the cold shoulder, Yeah. right? Yeah. And they would actually be talking to you, right? And not giving yeah. like rude remarks or, you know, yeah. rude comments or short replies. Those are the three behavioral signs that tell us if people want to talk to us. Are they looking at us? Are they facing us? Are they talking to us? And then after a while, if things are going well and it seems like they're including you, then you can introduce yourself. Right. But the introductions mm -hmm. come later. They don't come at the beginning. Mm. So let's go back to this sort of this parking lot situation in high school. Right? Sure. Where, you know, before you had just said hi with, you know, you had walking around with your cigarette. Um, yeah. You know, what would be another way to engage other people? You know, maybe you would have walked up and asked for a light or something like that. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. maybe to start a conversation. What if they were talking about, you know, some. I don't know, some some band that you like, right. what could you have done? Yeah, and I could have said, uh, you know, have you heard this new song or or do you have that record or or I just got this record or whatever? Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, is that not everybody comes hardwired to know to do that. Right. That just that you're supposed to find a common interest and, you know, mention the common interest. Not everyone knows that. But what I've discovered and, you know, over a decade of, of doing research um, on peers is that, you know, people can learn to do this. Mm -hmm. You don't have mm -hmm. to come hardwired with this, you know, this information. And a lot of people mm. do these things naturally. But the, the funny mm. thing about this is I, I mentioned that, you know, peers is unique because we teach ecologically valid skills like the ones I just described. But unfortunately, 
that's not what gets taught in a lot of social skills programs. It's a lot of what mm-hmm. adults think that kids should do. Go up and say hi, go up and introduce yourself. And the reality is that just because you have good social skills doesn't mean you know how to teach good social skills. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have to rely on research to tell us, well, what do socially successful people do? Let's teach that. But also, what are the common social errors? that people are making in these situations. We also have to teach not to do that. And so um, this is equally important. Hmm. Really interesting. Uh, so how, how, how did you determine what those ecologically valid skills were in the first place? Well, some of it comes from research. So for example, the what's called peer entry, this would be entering conversations or for younger kids entering play on the playground. You know, it's not even just psychologists that, that research this. It could be anthropologists, it could be sociologists. There's lots of different research that kind of looks at what do socially successful people do. And then in, yeah, in the absence of that, what we've had to learn to do, for example, around dating etiquette, Um, Dating etiquette is a a newer area of research for us. And while there is research about what socially successful people do on dates, um, there's not as much research as around Mm -hmm. friendships. And so we have to do a lot of focus groups with, you know, sort of typically Hmm. developing young people who are actively dating and successfully dating to sort of figure out, well, what does work and what, what doesn't and try to create these concrete rules and steps of social etiquette. Um, in the absence of more concrete research. Hmm. Hmm. Now, some folks are probably going to be wondering, in this day and age, there's been a lot of, uh, uh, a lot more sort of uh, advocacy and, and, and kind of um, um, uh, just a lot more people talking around this idea of kind of neurodiversity and, 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 you know, affirming neurodiversity and sort of not trying to sort of change folks as it were. Um, uh, and particularly, I think with, you know, kind of autistic folk and whatnot. Um, um, is, is there sort of consideration there that, you know, like autistic folk may just inherently kind of interact with folks differently? Like, I guess what my concern, my wonder is, is there, is there any kind of risk of things like masking and that kind of stuff occurring, you know, through the peers program or, or is, or is there some things that are kind of put in place to sort of say, listen, we're not, we're not trying to change you into somebody else. Yeah. I really appreciate the the question and the opportunity to kind of clarify this. And, and if you hadn't brought it up, I probably would have made a, a point to bring this up because it, it said it, it's such an important point, the idea of masking and camouflaging. And for anyone who's not familiar with those terms, um, it's sort mm-hmm. of a, a way that people will sometimes describe feeling as though they have to mask who they really are or, yeah. or camouflage who they really are to kind of, fit into the social norms or customs. And, and, and the thought is that, well, if we're teaching social skills, are we really teaching people to mask or to camouflage? Mm -hmm. And in Mm -hmm. in the process, are we trying to change who they are as individuals? And so, you know, even before the terms masking and camouflaging were really um, well known, these are terms that, you know, I hadn't heard of, you know, I'd say 18 years ago when I started Mm -hmm this work, um, but you hear more about them now. Even yeah. back when we started to develop peers, it really seemed important, even at the time, that whomever was going to be included in our program, that they actually had to be socially motivated, meaning mm. they had to want to be there. 
They had to be intrinsically right. motivated. I don't believe in forcing social skills onto anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, you know, Ben, that wouldn't really work very well, would it? If you force <laughs> no. them onto social, you know, social skills onto someone. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I think even more importantly, I don't think it would be ethical to force social skills onto someone who doesn't want to learn them. So in the very beginning of our screening process, um, before we even get more information from our families, the first question we always ask, especially if it's a parent calling about our program, is does your teen or your young adult know about this program and do they want to participate? And mm-hmm. the parent says, oh, well, they don't really want to do this, but you know, they need this, so I'll get them to come. We don't really include families um, where that's the case. They, the hmm. young adult or the teen has to actually say to us that they do want to participate in the program to be included. And so that's mm. just been something from the very beginning that's been important to us. Also, um, the other part of this too, that's um, maybe not as obvious, but I think equally important is mm-hmm. that we all in life use social skills or choose not to use them. So for example, right now we're doing this podcast and you're asking me questions and mm-hmm. I'm answering your questions and we're, I'm choosing to stay on topic and answer the questions <laughs> that you're asking me. And that's a social skill, but I'm choosing to do that. Um, I'm replying to your questions and you're choosing to be quiet and listen and, you know, laugh appropriately, you know, and all these different things. And we're using sure. social skills right now, but it's a choice. Now, Ben, when you're using these social skills right now, do you feel as though it's changing who you are as a person? If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is social. No, I uh, know. And, and in fact, even, well, I think, well, yes, yes, but not in a bad way, you know? So I think, you know, I'm, I'm learning things. I'm, you know, I'm growing, I'm getting new information. I'm learning about different ways of interacting with folks. So it, it, it's changed, but it's changed that I, that, that I'm happy to have. Yeah. So I think that the idea is that we, we all, um, whether we're neurodiverse or not, we all, mm-hmm have a choice about whether we mm-hmm. use social skills or not. There's lots, I'm, I would love to interrupt people um, more than <laughs> I do, um, yep. but I try to use my good social skills because I don't want to offend people or annoy people, yeah. but I, yeah. I tend to be, that's my social error. I'm an interrupter. I, I can't help myself sometimes, but yeah. when I'm choosing not to interrupt, I don't feel like I'm not myself. I don't feel like, um, I don't know mm. if that's camouflaging or if that's masking, I don't know what you want to call that, but I still get to be me. I still feel like Liz, yeah. but it is a choice. And so here's the bottom line about this, that, you know, I think that no one should be forced to, mm-hmm. to learn social skills. I think it has to be a, a choice and, and, and no one should be forced to use social skills. That's also a choice. But I think that if we have individuals, whether they're neurodiverse or not, that want to learn these skills, they should be allowed to. And they also should be allowed to have access to ecologically valid social skills, the ones that actually work, rather than just giving a bunch of bad advice, like mm-hmm. go up and say hi and go up and introduce yourself. Yeah, no, that, and, that, and that makes a lot of sense. 
you know, and I would presume, you know, that there's there's also, and again, I haven't experienced peers myself, so I, I don't know, but I would presume that there there's also things like, um, like I think one, and I, I, won't, I, won't, I don't want to spend too much time on the sort of ND masking sort of tangent, but I think one one thing that's been coming up a lot in 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 discussions and sort of autistic groups and whatnot um, is uh, uh, this idea of of reducing stimming behavior um, um, uh, because uh, you know often often I think in, in the ABA circles it's the rationale is that somehow it, it affects learning and and those sorts of things but you know the autistic folk will all say you know it's the opposite and and I I, I can't pay attention in class if I don't stim um, um, and those sorts of things so. Uh, I, I presume peers doesn't doesn't have any protocol that sort of says, okay, uh, just remember when you go up to that group, you've got to with you've got to sort of restrict your hand flapping or restrict your rocking or those sorts of things. Oh no, I I can guarantee those words have never come out of my mouth. <laughs> I wouldn't even presume to do that. Um, and you know, for whatever, it's just not something that we we focus on mm -hmm. in our program. Yeah. I think where that becomes more important when it comes to friendships or maybe dating would be, yeah. you know, if you um, engage in self-stimulatory behavior, just making sure that when you're choosing your friends or your potential romantic partners that they're okay with that, mm -hmm. right? And and choosing a, a source of friends or a source of romantic partners that isn't going to have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. um, or being able to to sort of advocate for yourself and explain that to others yep. um, and communicate what that means and why you do those things. But, you know, and re if, for example, um, something like stimming to, to maintain focus and attention um, could be misinterpreted by someone else as, you know, being distracted in some way. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But to clarify that actually in reality, when I'm, when I'm doing these behaviors or when I'm doing this, you know, self-stimulatory behavior, I'm actually hyper-focused on what you're saying. And mm -hmm. I may even be more attuned to what you're saying than others. And in fact, my, you know, me being neurodiverse means I also have, you know, a lot of attention to detail and a really good memory. Mm -hmm. So I'm probably more mm -hmm. likely to remember what you mm -hmm. told me than other people. So taking whatever makes you neurodiverse and not changing that, um, yes. I'm not trying to change um, the young people that I work with. I'm just trying to enhance their social interactions so other people can appreciate them for who they already are. And part of that is helping to learn to communicate. Um, your differences to other people. That's great. And I'll just say as a disclaimer, I've never really heard folks say this about peers. It's just more, I know these are the kinds of questions people are asking about these days. And when it comes to sort of, you know, quote unquote, neurotypical, you know, instructors. Yeah, I know. People that aren't, you know, there's an assumption that that stuff's going to be embedded in some way. Yeah. And I appreciate the opportunity to kind of address that. And I'm not, I'm not trying to speak for, really anyone other than myself mm -hmm. and, and for my program, because I do know that in some cases, you know, people have had bad experiences yeah. where they do feel as though their, their personality is being stifled or their, their, whatever the yes. sense of self is. And that's never going to be a, a positive um, experience for anyone. So I can understand yeah. um, the concern and I appreciate the opportunity to address it too. And I think you also make another great point around sort of, you know, communicating that piece. And so actually having some social skills training, first off, you know, can really be helpful to then, because essentially I think most of these folks aren't going to tell everyone and their dog, you know, about, you know, some of their sort of 
you know, the self-stimulatory behaviors and what they mean and what they're about. They, they need to build some trust and have a relationship with someone, just as we do with anybody. We, if we need to have some trust before we start, you know, being vulnerable and, and sharing kind of more intimate details about our life. And and but it's it's hard, I think, for a lot of these folks to do that because they can't develop those relationships in the first place. And so having a a nice program like peers that can actually give them some of those skills. It's almost um, a, a term that's often used. It's almost like a, a behavioral cusp, um, uh, which is, uh, you know, a term that they kind of, that our field kind of uses to describe, you know, something you learn that just opens up a whole bunch of more opportunities to, to sort of get reinforcement in ways you never could have before. And so I, you know, I really see, you know, I, I really, I really like that kind of connection there. Well, thank you. I appreciate the uh, the thumbs up. <laughs> Thanks, ben. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Yeah, um, kind of staying on kind of this theme of sort of um, uh, uh, of uh, you know trying not to be sort of uh, you know, applying any of the isms, as it were. Um, um, I think another thing I, I I that kind of drew me to kind of want to bring you on the podcast um, was, you know, if anyone, and I'll have links to all these things in the show notes, but if anyone kind of goes to the peers uh, website, you'll see, you know, there's, uh, as, as Liz mentioned in the beginning, a massive amount of, um, uh, of study supporting supporting peers and further than that you can actually click on the links and get the studies which i think is a bonus thing often we get we see evidence-based lists on a web page but then you have to go through paywalls to kind of access all this research so i think it's great that you i, I was able to sort of you know download most of those things and, and and kind of read them but one piece that i i really liked and that really that was sort of the first kind of draw for me to, to bring you on the show What's the work that you're now doing um, in terms of designing uh, peers programs that you're doing and other folks are doing to design peers programs uh, for other countries and for other kinds of uh, 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 cultures? And, and, and this is a big thing, I think, right now, which is and, and, and so it should be um, um, in, in, in a lot of things in our field is is that a lot of our programs that we've kind of put into place, a lot of a lot of our curriculum. You know, I'm not going to name them, but a lot of a lot of those a lot of these long term curricula that we've had in place in our field are very Western, are very whitewashed, um, and and really, you know, uh, kind of focus on sort of the uh, often a more privileged kind of perspective on the way things need to happen, um, and and so I'm I'm really I really like that um, you've got some papers coming out or that have come out. Um, uh, around peers in other countries, but not just the fact that you're, you're, you know, it's great. I mean, it's great to see that this program is, you know, moving around the world, uh, but also the, the fact that it's not just, you're not just replicating, you know, the American version of peers and implementing it in Japan or Thailand or China or, or other countries, but that you're actually working with other, you know, other groups. And, and I said, I imagine focus groups and other sorts of advisors and sort of in these different nations to change the programs so it fits the culture that you're in. Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's not just enough to to translate an intervention into another language, mm -hmm. but you have to you have to culturally adapt it. 
And you not only have to culturally and linguistically adapt it, but you also have to test the effectiveness of that program in that new environment. And so um, that's a huge part of the research that we do is this cross-cultural validation. And I'd love to tell you a story if you're interested in, in how all that came about. Absolutely. So um, I have this colleague in, um, in Korea, in South Korea. Her name is uh, Dr. Hee Jung Yoo, and she's mm-hmm. at Seoul National University. And she's, you know, this really amazing um, person. She's not only, uh, she's, she actually is a geneticist, but she's also a psychiatrist. So she does sort of this really hardcore basic science, but then also as a practitioner. And so she has an MD, PhD. She's just this really brilliant woman. Wow. And she happened to be, at um, UCLA years ago on a sabbatical in a genetics Mm. lab. And it was in a a lab of a colleague of mine, Dr. Dan Gashwin, who's one of the world's leading experts in the autism or the genetics of autism. And um, Mm. so she was there for almost a year until she discovered peers. She was just at the end of her sabbatical and Mm. she contacted me and she was interested in coming to a certified training seminar that we were doing on peers. And so I, I welcomed her as our guest and she came to this three-day training seminar and she got very inspired about the program. And she asked if she could bring the program back to Korea and adapt it and, and t- you know, study it. And I said, absolutely, whatever you need to do. So this is what she did. She took the program back. It's a manualized program. So anyone can sort of mm-hmm. see what it looks like, you know, on paper. She took the sure. manual back to Korea. She got a translation team together of a bunch of psychiatrists and practitioners. And they had a little bit of a translation team where they met weekly and they were translating the manual kind of chapter by chapter. And they were talking about mm-hmm. cultural, you know, um, considerations and kind of going by consensus. Then after they translated, translated the manual, they shared it with over two dozen mental health professionals and educators throughout South Korea to see what felt culturally sensitive. And then they, um, you know, adapted the program based on the consensus there. Then they surveyed over 400 typically developing teenagers in South Korea to see what was ecologically valid for these kids. In other words, what, um, where did they find their friends? You know, what kinds of extracurricular activities did they engage in? Um, What were the different kind of peer groups that existed in their middle school or high school? What did their get togethers look like with friends? You know, what were they doing? What did they say in response to teasing? All these different things that we teach in peers, they surveyed over 400 kids to figure out what was ecologically valid. Then they took that information, adapted the manual based on that consensus there. Then they did this beautiful, elegant, randomized control trial, and they got almost identical findings to what we get in North America. And, you know, she really set the standard for how to do this kind of cross-cultural validation. And now that's been replicated, you know, in over a dozen places across the globe and continuing to do research in this area. But I think the the message that I want to send here that I, I wouldn't have really anticipated myself, but I think is very heartening, is that, you know, when I went into this research with, with He Zhang Yu and, and others, I sort of expected there to be a lot of adaptations, you know, I mean, we're sort of told that, you know, there's, you know, cultures are so different. We're all so different Mm -hmm. across the globe. And I don't know if it's because we live in a very global society now or, or what it is, but ultimately in the end, there were not as many changes as what we expected. There were certain, certain lessons are more culturally sensitive than others. So for example, we have a lesson on finding a source of friends and that involves things like extracurricular activities and finding different peer groups, right? Like in every school, mm-hmm. there's like the, the jocks or the gamers, the techies, you know, the, 
the computer geeks, the, you know, anime geeks, whatever. There's all these different yep, groups yep. of kids and they congregate around shared interests. That was culturally sensitive, right? There were some differences there. Although there are gamers across the globe, let me just say. Yes. And there's techies yes. across the globe. And there was actually a lot of overlap across these groups. Yep. But there were some that were very unique to that region. The other sessions that were very culturally sensitive were things like get togethers. So for example, mm-hmm. you know, in, in West, like in the West and in, in the North, in North America in particular, when kids have get togethers, they they're in the community, but they're often in their homes as well. But, you know, in parts of Asia, get togethers are rarely in people's homes. They're mostly mm-hmm. in the community. Um, and then also things like teasing, what do people, you know, say or do in response to teasing that was different, but in reality, there was a lot more similarity across cultures than there were differences. And what I love about this message that we've seen just time and time again with all of these cross-cultural validation trials is that really at our core, what makes us really social beings is actually more similar than it is hmm. different. And again, I find that very heartening. And, and I just wanted to share that, that message because I think it's a, it's a really nice thing for people to be aware of. Well, I think that's a great story, and, and it, it it makes sense when you think about it. I mean, I mean, friendships are based on shared interest and 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 some of those other components, and and it makes sense that it wouldn't be all that different in sort of other areas. But like you said, you know, there's there's going to be sort of maybe particular ways of interacting and different things like that that might be sort of incorporated. So I, I can really see that happening. I'm curious. Um, first off, just just love it uh, uh you know uh, the uh, i think it, it really seems like you, you you folks and these other folk these other sort of collaborators are, are just doing all the right things as far as um um uh you know creating a, a an intervention that that uh, you know is both culturally and you know and 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 neurodiversity affirming i mean i think i think these are things i think this could be a model sort of for other other curriculum out there um, that are that are, are, are you know potentially doing revisions and whatnot because I think a lot of these are really uh, often just uh, you know kind of American uh, you know Americanized. Um, but I was wondering, have you seen sort of examples now? Being that North America is you know uh, uh, and, and certainly in my region. Um, uh, is very multicultural and, and and often a melting pot of a lot of different groups. Have you seen sort of examples of sort of of groups, say in the states, that you know maybe like a group of Chinese families in the states using the Chinese version that was created over there and bringing it over here and applying it in those kinds of contexts? Yeah, very good question. You know, um, a lot of times it sort of depends on the the social context of the young person, right? So mm-hmm. um, if they're sort of immersed in more of a Western culture, then the skills that we teach, you know, in our, our U.S. version of the, the peers program might be more applicable if they want to make friends, you know, here in the mm-hmm. U.S. But where we really found um, the material quite helpful is is in providing support to parents. Maybe, um, you know, like for example, we have a lot of Korean American families in our program mm-hmm. in UCLA. And, mm-hmm. and some of the parents, you know, speak English, but maybe their English isn't, you know, it's not their first language and they prefer right. to get materials in Korean. And so we might provide the Korean handouts. 
um, as well as the English handouts or same thing with, you know, Spanish versions of things or, you know, Japanese, Chinese, whatever it happens to be. Um, I found that it's a nice support to some of the, the, you know, materials that we provide to our families, but I think it really depends on the cultural context. And so, yeah. you know, that if you're living in the U S is probably going to be more of a, a U.S. sort of, um, Mm-hmm. You know, set of rules, but I think it's easier sometimes for for parents to understand that you know using different sort of language and and um, customs. So yeah, I think it's a good point and um, something to keep in mind. But you know, every person too has their own sort of personal culture, right? We're all sort of slightly mm. different, and so I don't think that any intervention should be a one size fits all. And yeah. so we don't treat peers in that way. It's, you know, this manual is filled with a lot of do's and don'ts of social behavior. Like do's are the common social errors that people might make. And the, mm-hmm. the you know, the, the don'ts are the common social errors. The do's are the ecologically valid skills. But even within that, there's a lot of, you know, individual variability. And so that's why having that social coaching piece is important to kind of individualize the program. And also things like we give homework assignments every week, but we don't just mm-hmm. give an assignment to practice the skill out in the real world. We also check in to see how it went and we troubleshoot mm. when things don't go right and we we individualize the program there for people on a on a weekly basis. So I, I think that yeah while there are cultural differences, there's also individual differences that are worth yes. maybe mentioning too. No, that makes a lot of sense. I think I, I'm thinking too though, and I'm and, and I and I say this for some from the, the BC listeners out there. Vancouver in particular is, um, uh, and the sort of the Vancouver area, and, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but the ma- the majority of the, uh, the, the the sort of the the white sort of population is in the minority, um, and we we have a huge uh, Asian Canadian population and a huge um, South Asian population, um, and then and then we kind of have us, so we're 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 kind of uh, the minority here, and so I could really see in 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 places like. Um, for for the locals listening, like in places like Richmond, uh, BC, where it's you know the, the language is primarily uh, you know Chinese dialects um, and and very little English. That you know if if we had folks trained in peers that could take that Chinese program and apply it, I think it'd be really cool. Um, I haven't really seen examples of that locally, and so I'm sort of just putting that out there for anyone listening that it might be a, a, that that there's resources available if say you've taken sort of the American you know, a peer's instruction, you know, there, there's a Chinese book out there that yeah. you can grab onto. That's yeah. right. I mean, we have it available in, in Mandarin and, and Cantonese, both for teens and for adults. So um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Feel free to, to check out our website. You can access the resources there, but yes, thank you for, for the plug on that, because I don't think everyone does realize that, that these programs haven't just been researched in other parts of the world, but mm-hmm. we actually have, you know, over a dozen published manuals in other languages. And something else I've seen, and I wonder if this is somehow maybe incorporated, maybe in 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 your current projects with the careers and dating and whatnot, um, is I've seen, and I saw, I think I saw an example of this actually in one of your, in one of the studies. Yeah, there was a study where I can't remember which one it was, but where the folks providing the intervention um, did peers, but then they also added the circles program. Um, um, as well. So it was, it was a social group that incorporated some aspects of the circles program and then with peers. Um, uh, and I've also seen, uh, uh, there's a, a local group here, um, that's doing peers right now. 
and then combining it with um, um, so this particular agency is as behavior analysts that are also certified sexual health educators. And so they're combined and I don't know what it looks like at all. I haven't really seen it, but they're combining aspects of uh, uh, of sort of, you know, sexuality training um, into the peers. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, 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 I don't know if that's taking away from and and forgive me, folks out there that are listening, if I'm if I'm damaging your rep here, but I don't know if that's taking away from the integrity of the peers program. Um, but I just thought it was neat to see sort of folks kind of adapting it and and adding other other components to maybe make either either to draw more folks in or just to kind of you know teach some other skills. Have, have you seen other examples of that, or is that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's a lot of examples of where people will take um, the peers curriculum and incorporate it into other programs that maybe are um, targeting different skills. And, right. you know, what I love is when they take and, and they adapt it using kind of these evidence-based methods of teaching social mm -hmm. skills, because I, I often argue it's not just what we're teaching, it's how we're teaching. And mm -hmm. so we have a whole formula for how we teach social skills. You know, we have this small group format to begin with. Uh, we like to have that social coaching piece, right? Where there's some sort of parent mm -hmm. or caregiver or some social coach out in the real world and to help generalize the skills and to support the use of the skills in more natural social settings. There's, we do a lot of um, didactic lessons, right? With concrete rules and steps of social mm -hmm. behavior. You don't want to think of social skills as just this abstract thing. That's going to be too hard to mm -hmm. learn how to do something. Break everything down into concrete rules and steps. Teach to the mind of that neurodiverse mm -hmm. individual. Most people can learn, you know, if they're presented with rules and steps of a social behavior, um, rather than watch this and do what I do. Like that's not going to be as clear. And then there's role play demonstrations. That's also part of the formula. We show bad examples mm. of what not to do. We show good examples yeah. of what to do. We do perspective mm. taking as well. That's sort of like what we call social cognition, mm. getting into the mind of the other person. What was that like for that person when I did such and such, you know, what did they think of me? Will they mm. want to talk to me again? And then from there doing behavioral rehearsal exercises. So practicing whatever the newly learned skill is and re receiving performance mm -hmm. feedback through coaching right there in the moment from our team and then giving a homework assignment to practice out in the real world. And then of course we follow up the next time we see them to see how it went. We troubleshoot, we individualize the program kind of based on how the mm -hmm. skills were utilized. That's a great formula for teaching social cool. skills. So I love when I see other programs not only incorporating their curricula into what we do with peers, but also using those evidence-based strategies for teaching skills. Yes. Oh, great. Good. Well, that's awesome. A third thing that, 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 that you've been doing that really, that makes me happy. Um, um, and I was, I've talked to a few other guests about this area. What one struggle I have in general with kind of behavior analytic research uh, in particular, like applied kind of intervention research uh, is is that the follow up tends to be sort of sort of the follow up data that that they collect tends to be you know anywhere from sort of two weeks post intervention to maybe three or three or you know if you're lucky six months post intervention and then you don't hear anything else about it um, and I I really I I I really find that interesting that you know in 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 a, in a field of sort of behavior analysis that we're not more concerned with long-term sustainability of interventions um 
I, uh, I, I did chat with one, one researcher who's does kind of family centered PBS, uh, Joe Lucician. And he does, he does like seven, 10. And he, he mentioned in, in the interview, he did that a few days sort of post interview, he was planning on collecting a 12 year follow-up data point. And I was like, that's, that's what I want to see more of. Like, show me that this stuff works beyond, you know, the, the, the three months of sort of funding I got to pay for an interventionist to come help me. Uh, and so what I really loved was when I saw one of your studies was measuring kind of um, the long-term outcomes of peers. And so I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about kind of what you did there and kind of, you know, what, what you found out sort of beyond, you know, a, a few months later of, of, of being done the training. The second secret word is coaching. Yeah, so we've done this not only in our, our adolescent groups, but also in our preschool groups where we've actually collected information, some data one to five years after treatment. And so in, for example, the teen program, these were teens that had gone through a 14-week um, parent-assisted social skills program that was focused on making and keeping friends and handling conflict and rejection. They came to UCLA once a week for 90 minutes. Um, it wasn't a lot of time in the grand scheme of life. You know, 14 weeks isn't a lot, but their parents participated in the treatment as well mm. as social coaches. And so what we found one to five years later that was that they were doing just as well, if not better across the board and all of the skills that we, we assess. So things like overall social skills using the social skills improvement system. Um, we used, uh, looked at problem behaviors on that same measure, and they were all decreasing. The social skills were improving. So nice improvements yeah. on something called the social responsiveness scale. So these are kind of like autism-specific yeah. symptoms related to things like social communication, social awareness, yeah. um, social motivation, and um, social cognition, even decreased autistic mannerisms like perseverating on topics of interest. Things like social yeah. engagement also continued to improve. They were getting together with friends more frequently and all of that maintained even their social skills knowledge related to the skills we were teaching in peers. And what this study really told us, because they were doing just as well, if not better, was that to me, the true power behind this program was not that they came to UCLA for 90 minutes once mm -hmm. a week for 14 mm -hmm. weeks. It was that they had parents that were involved mm. in the treatment that were continuing to provide that social coaching. And that, that study really showed me that that program, the program nearly never ended for those kids. Mm. Um, they still remembered a lot of the skills we taught them from the beginning. I think that's because parents were using buzzwords and buzz phrases and reviewing the rules and steps in their coaching and they were mm -hmm. continuing to do well. I don't think you would see those types of outcomes if we didn't have that type of social coaching component. And so I think I, you know, I really agree with you. It's not just important that people are doing well at the end of a program or even, you know, weeks or months later, what's happening years later. Um, that's mm -hmm. equally important. And, and if it's not continuing to work years later, I want to know that because I want mm -hmm. to do something to, to change that. Do we need maintenance programs? Do we need booster mm -hmm. sessions? But here's one thing I don't believe in. I mean, I think that the 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 traditional kind of social skills group is that you know neurodiverse individuals go to a social skills group once a week for the rest of their lives and mm -hmm. i just don't agree with that i don't think that i mean that has to be the case and if if you have to go to a social skills training program every week for the rest of your lives then that training program isn't doing its job 
because I I don't think that if you give people a core set of skills um, targeted on something like friendships or, you know, careers or dating, whatever it happens to be, as long as you have that social coaching component outside in the real world to support the, the use of those skills, I don't think you have to be receiving training every week for the rest of your lives. (laughs) I think social recreation is different, you know, being engaged in social activities and, and meeting up with people Mm -hmm. that should be happening, you know, every, every week for the rest of your lives, hopefully multiple times a week, but the training piece, I don't believe in that, that model. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you could certainly have a a social group, you know, uh, just a group of friends that kind of get together and meet every week if you want to chat and hang out and and uh, and do that sort of piece. But you're right; if you have to keep training them, then then it's not working. That's really cool. Um, and uh, another question I kind of had, kind of changing the direction a little bit, um, is one thing one thing that peers is really known for is being this evidence based pro- social skills program for for folks with autism but is is the research just on 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 autistic folk no actually thank you for for mentioning it cuz i think that that gets lost sometimes it actually you know mm. in our programs we don't just include neurodiverse individuals I and mean, we include anybody who wants mm-hmm. to learn the skills that we're teaching. And so there's a lot of research on peers for youth with, with ADHD, with anxiety, depression, um, traumatic mm-hmm. brain injury, um, psychosis. I mean, I, I don't even know that I can remember all the different mm-hmm, studied. Mm-hmm. So um, I think the reason that it, it this program works with other populations, even though initially my, my original research was for youth on the autism spectrum. I think the reason it works with others is because we're just teaching good social skills and it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what, you know, whether you have a diagnosis or not, um, it's just good social skills. So they apply to everybody. That's great. Yeah. Cause I I think that is something that, uh, folks have sort of made the presumption and, you know, I, I can only attend one of these groups if my child is autistic and so on and so forth. And so, you know, I think that's, that's an important uh, uh, myth to dispel. Um, another question is around, which I like as well, is sort of, and kind of after thinking about this some more, I, I, maybe some of this is a little more obvious than, than I thought, but I like that you kind of, when you're measuring kind of the outcomes in some of these studies, it's it you do have some great you know social skills kinds of sort of metrics that are that are well known and well used and and sort of good measures of those pieces. But I think you know measuring that I have you know all these social skills now, you know, doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to be a happy guy now um, um, because I now know how to make friends because. I still have to go make friends um, and, and, you know, and, 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 you know, develop those pieces. So I liked that there was um, uh, at least a couple studies that I found uh, that I read and I, I, and forgive me, I, I did not read all 40 studies on the list. Yeah. I, uh-huh. I kind of, I kind of, I just opened up the more recent ones yeah. and read them. Um, and so, uh, but there was one study in particular that I saw that measured, um, out, that measured outcomes of, uh, related to depression and 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 what and more so which what i was which i thought was really fascinating was suicidal ideation yeah um 
Can you tell us a little bit about that one? Yeah, so this was a study that uh, took place outside of UCLA. And as you mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast, you know, we haven't done all of the research on peers, which I think is really important. There's been a lot of independent replication of the research and other this is that yeah. even taken the research further. And one lab where they really do a lot of, of research around peers is at Marquette University in Wisconsin. Um, Amy Van Hecke's group does a lot of research. And I think the paper you're referring to, um, the lead author there was out of Marquette. Her name is Hillary Schultz. And she's actually one of my current okay. pre-doctoral psychology interns. Interesting. She'll be thrilled that we were mentioning her here, I, I hope. Um, so that study looked at um, changes in depressive symptoms from pre to post test um, following peers. And, you know, peers isn't really targeting mental health conditions like depression or anxiety, but we do see some really nice outcomes there. And mm-hmm. so that's what she found was that just from pre to post test, um, the participants who'd gone through, it was a young adult program, um, mm-hmm. actually were experiencing less negative mood, um, less anhedonia, um, less just the overall depression and actually less suicidal ideation or thoughts of suicide. And I think this is going back to um, when I first mentioned kind of at the top of the podcast, one of the things I love yeah. about social skills training is that it's a different approach to mental health issues. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's sort of like before I went into this field, I didn't mention to this to you, Ben, but before I went into this field, I did a lot of crisis counseling and suicide assessment and suicide interventions. And I felt like I was constantly putting out fires, you know, it's pretty, Mm -hmm. pretty intense work, pretty exhausting emotionally, but always felt like I was putting out fires. What I love about peers and about social skills training is that it's like fire prevention, right? Mm -hmm. It's helping to avoid all of those negative outcomes that come from not having friends, from being socially yep. isolated, from being bullied and teased and rejected. Remember, I said one of the strongest predictors of mental health problems later in life is peer rejection. And mm-hmm. so this study was a really good example of how you can actually have a pretty big impact on things like depressive symptoms in a pretty short period of time, 16 weeks. That's amazing. Um yeah, because uh, just there's a lot of kids where I think, you know, uh, that 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 would really be be really helpful for. Um, we talked about sort of peers being one of the only kind of you know evidence based programs out there. We know how important social skills are. I mean, your outcomes are you know have have, have proven that you know having social skills you know reduces depression and whatnot. You know, you, 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 the the psychosis study is really cool. Um, you know, there 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 there's a lot of you know really great examples of kind of kind of how this works for folks. It's 2021. Why don't we have more evidence based social skills programs out there? Why is it just peers? And maybe a couple others that I can't even name. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I, I've been asked this question before. And, you know, so I've given mm. a lot of thought. And I don't think that it's for lack of need. I think we're all clear mm. on that. Or mm. even lack of, of want, you know, from researchers. Mm. I think, truthfully, this is a funding issue, if you ask me. Mm. So I think we all know that, you know, millions of dollars go into autism research every year, just in North America alone. And if you look at sort of where those dollars go, the vast majority, do you want to guess, Ben, where do you think the vast majority of autism research dollars go? 
what area of, of autism research? The genetic stuff, the cause. Yes, you're so right. You know, a lot of people don't know that. So you are very well informed. You're 100% correct. The vast majority goes into um, genetic studies, imaging studies, basic science, um, really understanding the cause of autism. Well, okay, mm -hmm. if you're a person on the spectrum or you care about someone on the spectrum, you know, you, you care, you might care about, you know, what's the cause of autism, but you probably also mm -hmm. want to know what can you do now to support, mm -hmm. you know, individuals on the spectrum to help them lead more meaningful lives, whatever that means mm -hmm. for them. And so the vast majority of the studies aren't really looking into that. Um, in fact, mm -hmm. treatment research is really just a small little sliver of the research dollars. And then within that treatment, you know, sliver, um, where do you think most of those dollars are focused? What, what area of development for treatment? That for treatment. So uh, is, is, is it just the sort of the challenging behavior area or? Yeah. I mean, when you think about development, thinking about like the age that's focused on, Oh, I see. So the, the very young, yeah. the, the sort of the early intervention. Kind exactly. Of it's mostly focused yeah. on early intervention. And I think we all know that early intervention is, is very important. But what happens when mm -hmm. those kids grow up? You know, their yeah. their needs change. And even social skills interventions, um, which is the tiniest sliver of the pie, you know, of, of what gets funded, mm -hmm. um, they tend to focus on younger kids. But even with, within yeah. social skills, social demands change across the lifespan. Mm -hmm. The social skills that you need as a preschooler are different than the social skills you need in, in grade school or elementary school. And then that changes very dramatically once you hit middle school and high school. And then on to adulthood. What about, you know, getting a job and developing mm -hmm. romantic relationships? What about independent living? The social demands change across the lifespan. So when people ask, why aren't there more evidence-based, you know, social skills interventions? I think it's really a, it's a pragmatic issue. It's a funding issue. And I think mm -hmm. that these types of research studies aren't getting funded. And so people yeah. aren't doing them because they don't have the funding to do that. So a lot of what we do in peers at UCLA is we do a lot of certified training seminars where we, we train mental health professionals and educators across the globe in our program. We certify them so that they can also provide uh, programs where they, you know, where they practice. And they don't have to go through training, by the way, to use a peers program, but it's something that we do. And then we take a lot of the, the revenue from those certified trainings and we put it back into our research. And so we fund a lot of our own research um, and we don't wait for NIH, you know, to, or C or whatever mm -hmm. private foundation to fund us. A lot of times we move forward or we get generous donations from people who want to support our research. And we, we try to, you know, find other ways, creative ways to fund the research so that it doesn't have to slow us down. But, you know, yeah. I think that's primarily the, the issue is that there's just not a lot of funding for this type of research. I mean, I think it's great that you've developed a model where you can fund your own research. It's that's just seems that's so frustrating. Even though I knew the answer was genetics, it's so frustrating that it, that that's true. Uh, you know, because we, we, we spent a while earlier in the podcast talking about, you know, neurodiverse perspectives and, and trying to be, you know, affirming and all those sorts of things. But at the same time, most of the money is going into because the goal of of finding sort of the genetic sort of predetermines and, and and the causes of autism 
the goal seems pretty clear. The long-term goal is how can we prevent it from happening in the first place? Um, it's sort of what I get from determining that kind of research. I, I don't see any other reason why you would do this genetic research beyond, you know, prevention of autism in the first place. And that, you know, that, and while I can certainly understand for families who have, you know, you know, children who are, you know, very, very severe levels of disabilities, um, uh, you know, that's a different perspective. But for a lot of these folks that are, you know, you know, certainly any of the folks that are participating in the peers program um, um, and, and learning and, and, and you know, and, and have the capability of learning those skills, that would be incredibly offensive um, to sort of hear that most of the research in, in the field is going to preventing them from happening. Yeah, I, I, I think that I agree. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of um, basic scientists that would say that that's not you know, their, their mission that they're trying to help with, mm -hmm. you know, early screening and detection so that support can be sure. provided. And I think that that's very true too, but I yep. think that there's others that would, would, you know, make the the claim that you make, which is that, you know, yeah. does this have to do with trying to, um, you know, do something different there? I mean, it, it's, it's such a delicate yeah, yeah. subject, but. No, I get it. And I know, yeah, I don't, I don't want you to sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, say things that might, uh, you know, uh, damn your colleagues or whatnot. Uh, but you know, it, it's just, it, that's just a, that's certainly just a personal opinion of mine, but I, it is, it, I, it is just frustrating that there, there isn't more resources going into, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, certainly any of these folks that are ages six and up. Um, so I think, I think it's great to hear that, you know, the 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 fund the, the sort of revenue from peers isn't just going to you know uh, you know give Dr. Lagasin a, a, a big mansion in Beverly Hills. It's going it's going to going back into you know developing you know more programs and and more evidence based treatment. So I think that that you know you you can't do much better than that. So I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, just kind of getting near kind of wrapping up here. We're kind of hitting sort of the average time of, uh, of these episodes. Uh, it's been, it's just a, a great conversation. I'm curious, um, about a, just a couple of things. One is, um, um, is there, is there any kind of, are there plans in the works? There seems to be some age groups that are missed, um, in, in, in social skills sort of training in general, particularly, you know, older adults, um, um, you know, and, and we talked about, you, you talked about sort of how early intervention is really important, you know, but what about those folks that say, you know, get diagnosed after and missed early intervention. So you've got some, some pieces in place. Well, there's other folks, you know, particularly our folks that kind of come out of sort of, you know, deinstitutionalization and, you know, and, you know, and we're sort of, you know, living in, you know, essentially in, you know, in hospitals their entire life, um, uh, you know, coming back into the world, um, um and and now living in maybe a group home setting or or whatnot and they're in their 50s and 60s and 70s and some of them still have you know good amounts of years left in their lives um but there's nothing available for those folks the third secret word is friendship yeah yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, historically with our, our programs and, and the way we've chosen to develop, you know, certain programs focused on certain topics is really about what is what is the need? Where is there a gap? Mm. And so where mm. are we getting, you know, demand where, you know, what are people calling about? What are they requesting? 
And that's sort of sure. where the whole origin of, of Cures started with the, the phone ringing off right. the hook from parents of teens with, you know, on the spectrum. Um, we the, the interesting thing here is that we know that, you know, every year, you know, what is it like 70 to 80,000 people are aging into adulthood um, that are on the spectrum. I yeah. hope I get the statistic right. Forgive me if I didn't within the U.S. Um, it's a large number of people that are, are, are aging and, and those that are also entering middle and later adulthood. And so mm -hmm. our research is focused a lot more on younger adults or middle-aged adults, but, you know, we do work mm -hmm. with older adults as well. Um, we work with them more individually. We haven't formalized mm. a research program or a curriculum mm. around that population because we're not getting a lot of requests, strangely, mm -hmm. from older adults in the spectrum. That doesn't mean we can't provide clinical services. And mm -hmm. what we found is that the, you know, the intervention that I've developed around adults, you know, younger adults, um, mm -hmm. is very applicable to older adults too. The conversation, mm -hmm. rules of conversation are started the same you know, sure. and entering conversations, exiting conversations, but, you know, finding a source of friends is going to look different when you're in your, you know, your sixties than when you're in your early twenties. And so there's ways that we can kind of individualize that for, for people. But I absolutely see that on the, the research horizon that we hopefully yeah. will get some interest um, from older adults in doing this type of research. I think we could probably manage to get some funding. And if not, like we said, mm -hmm. we found creative ways to fund ourselves. But sure. first I have to, to find that there's actually people that are interested in, in getting yeah. this um, this support. And, you know, I don't know, what do you think about that, Ben? I mean, why why aren't they calling? What What is going on? Are, are these individuals who maybe haven't been diagnosed? I sometimes wonder. Um, maybe they've su suspected that they have autism, but never been diagnosed formally, maybe aren't seeking out the services. I think it goes back to your, and all, all great points. Absolutely. I think you're bang on as to sort of why, and that makes a lot of sense. I think the main reason is, and we see this sort of across the board for kind of adult services for anyone, any kind of uh, disability, um, is that. You talked about sort of how peers kind of got off the ground in the first place, and that was from parents calling in demand or needing wanting services. Well, for these older adults, there's no parents anymore. Uh, the, you know, the, the the parents aren't alive, or if they are, they're they're in their nineties. Uh, you know, and 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 often these folks are now in sort of in, in, maybe in residential care or supported living, and you know, and 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 that whole dynamic has now changed. So unless there's sort of a maybe a living sibling around that's or a cousin or or a child for that matter that's actively involved there's no one out there advocating there's no one out there demanding these kinds of supports and this is why you know i think this is the big reason why you know uh, and and your number the number there you know you, you quoted of the 80,000 and you know i don't know what the number is either but you're right there's so many people going into adult services every year um i had thought by now some of the parents of those same folks that were children would now be sort of advocating for, you know, services for some of the older folks. But uh, again, because I think when you get into sort of that 55 plus category, these parents are no longer, they're no longer in advocacy mode. They're in, I need a break mode and I need to, I need, I need to rest mode. And so I think, you know, this is a long way of saying there's no one to sort of speak. Yeah, for. I think you're right. I think it's a very good hypothesis and I think it's a, another example of why we need to teach young people at a very early age how to advocate for themselves. Um, yeah. And I think that that's, you know, that's become a, a big part of some of the, the work that we do, particularly around um, peers for careers, but really we're, we're kind of infusing it into all of our programs now. 
Um, even things mm-hmm. as simple as how do you talk about your diagnosis with someone? How do you share that? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. As well as things like navigating services and supports. Yeah, for sure. And sort of just to kind of finish things off, uh, I guess the question is: is, is uh, what 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 are you what are you working on right now? What's what what are the what are the kind of current projects out there for the 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 peers team and the and your lab and what? Yeah, well, I kind of alluded to a couple of them. So right now we um we have a lot of research um taking place at, at our clinic at UCLA. So we have um, peers for careers, which is a college to career transition program for adults on the spectrum, and. Great name. Thank you. It has a little <laughs> ring to it. That fits nice. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> that worked out yeah. well. I like when things climb. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So at any rate, that's a, a college to career program, and it's helping um, a neurodiverse adults uh, learn how to find and, and maintain employment. But really, um, mm-hmm. it's not just teaching the soft skills related to employment, things like, you know, choosing a career, you know, you know applying for jobs, finding employment, interviewing, mm-hmm. you know, creating resumes. But it also includes um, employer supports. So working with employers mm. on creating supported sort of integrated environments for um, their neurodiverse employees um, to thrive, you know, in the workplace. And so we were really excited about that. This is a, a study that was funded by Autism Speaks, and I'm working on this with uh, a close colleague, Dr. Amanda Goldsrud. And it's just been a, a complete joy. And we were having really, mm. you know, kind of anecdotally some really great outcomes around employment. Um, so that will be, um, there'll be more information about that to come, but if people are interested, they can check out our website. We're still recruiting for that study and we're really opening it up to, to people across the U S at the, at this time. We also have peers Mm -hmm. for, um, dating, which is what it sounds like. It's a a 16 week Mm. curriculum focused on developing and maintaining romantic relationships for neurodiverse individuals. Um, it involves this dating coaching aspect as does peers for careers. We have this career coaching piece. And in both of those studies, we're really looking at what is the impact of that coaching piece outside of the treatment mm. setting. Um, everybody receives the intervention and the study, but it's that, do they have a coach or not? And how much of an impact does that mm. have? And coaches are um, typically undergraduate or graduate students that um, mm. the young adults have identified that they'd like to work with. There's actually this really cool speed coaching event that we do in both of the, huh. <laughs> both of the studies where we have the young adult and the coach they um, interview each other for five minutes and they end up interviewing everybody. Like everyone gets interviewed and, you know, you're asking questions like, you know, if it's careers, like, you know, what is your major, what are your career aspirations? What jobs have you had? Um, And they get to rate how much they either want to be coached by that person or how much they want to coach that person. And we create coaching dyads kind of based on that, which Mm -hmm. has been really fun. And then um, the third study that we're doing right now is it's a third randomized control trial and it's using um, the drug L-DOPA and in combination with peers. And so L-DOPA for people who aren't familiar is a drug often used for Parkinson's patients. And what it does is it increases the amount of dopamine in the brain. And the dopamine is just a a natural kind of chemical in the brain. It's called a neurotransmitter. Mm -hmm. And it's very much related to feelings of reward and pleasure. And so we're using this drug in combination with peers or a placebo to really see, can we make socialization more rewarding? Um, so it's a very in, interesting kind of, I think, innovative study. Um, it's funded by NIH and um, we're working with Dr. Jim McCracken at UCLA on that study. So again, more, more to come on that, but lots of kind of interesting things happening right now um, in our programs. 
Oh, that's really cool. The the uh, the the peers for careers is definitely something I think we'll be really interested in. I mean, a lot of folks will be interested. Our agency in particular that I work for um, is is half behavior support and half uh, customized employment. Um, and so, yeah, and and we actually, I think we actually have a, a couple of peers trainers that are in the employment department. So I think, you know, uh, that particular program would be would would be really amazing. Well, we will we will stay uh, very busy and try our best to get this um, shared and disseminated with you as quickly as we can. Amazing, amazing, uh, wonderful chat. Any any kind of last thoughts for for the podcast audience? Um, you know, there was actually something I wanted to say earlier, and I, I was trying to use mm. my good social skills, and I didn't want to interrupt <laughs> you. And we don't, you know, we're not able to see each other right now, so we don't get the nonverbals of like wanting to say things. But yes. we were talking about um, social skills being sort of a different approach to mental health problems. Yes. And, and you would ask the question about that, and um, and I was thinking, I was remembering a little a, a story of a young boy sure. that I worked with years ago, he was about 13. And he was on the autism spectrum. But but like a lot of, you know, kids or people on the spectrum, he also had some some mental health, um, you know, issues. And he was a very depressed kid. And he'd, you know, he'd been in a lot of different uh, treatments, he'd gone through any every kind of psychotropic medication you could think of. Um, and mm. nothing had really worked. He'd been in and out of inpatient units and, you know, had even suicidal ideation and even suicide attempts. And, um, and he came through peers and he was, he was very motivated. He and his, his mother, his mother was his social coach and he took the program really seriously. He came every week, you know, on time and ready to go doing his homework assignments. And, um, mm. and he did very, very well in the program. And I remember at the very last session, we had our, our graduation party and graduation ceremony. And he came up to me at the end and he said, Dr. Liz, I've been on every single medication you could think of. And I already knew that about mm. him, but I kind of nodded my mm. head like, okay. And he said, friendship is the best medicine. Oh. And I, I still get like, I still get choked oh. up when, when I think, I mean, I'm like tearing. I, I get choked up when I think about that. Oh. Um, and that was what worked for him. It wasn't, you know, drug X or drug Y. It was friendships for him. And not to belittle the fact that some people really need, you know, psychotropic medication. I think we know that. But, Absolutely. you know, there may be other things that we can do to support, you know, those that we care for. And so I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I was thinking of that story as we were talking and I didn't get a chance to share it. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to share it. Totally. Oh, what a what a what a what a great way just to end the whole conversation. <laughs> that that that's an awesome story and a great slogan and likely to be the title of the podcast. Oh, Thank you. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so cool. Uh, so uh, really fascinating, Liz. I, you know, I, I tell you initially, you know, I, but before I met you through the first time, I was like. I haven't taken the program. I haven't done the training. Is there going to be much to talk about? And, <laughs> and there was so many great things to talk about. And, and it was such a great conversation. Really, really appreciate you, you coming on the podcast. Oh, Ben, thank you so much. It was truly a pleasure. The time just flew by. It was fun. Totally. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks thank again. Thank you.